0: Swanson family looking so lovely. Little little Simon looking like a Minnesota Viking linebacker. I just wanted to yell, skull! <laughs> we praise God for this um, ministry and for missions. We have wanted missions in our DNA as a church right from the beginning, and so we praise God for lifting up uh, folks like the Swansons. We've uh, as you said, had the privilege of partnering with them in various ways. Uh even a couple of years ago, we've had a couple of students uh who have gone from a neighborhood, from the community, uh, who have gone. Uh was that Spain? Nepal. Went to Nepal that year. Uh so do, young people, uh pray about that. Consider it. Uh remember we live as people who are sent, and uh that sending begins. Uh, even even in youth and and young adulthood, so do consider that. Pray for that. See how the Lord would guide you. And thank you, uh, Sister Sasha, for leading us in that in that conversation. You guys will know that we nominated Sasha as our deaconess of missions um, at our last members meeting, and uh, our next members meeting is February sixteenth, I believe, a couple of Thursdays from now. Uh, Well, we'll be voting on her call to serve us in that capacity. So do pray for Sasha uh, and encourage her uh, as she works in that way. Well, let me quiet my own heart uh, with a prayer here, and let us turn to uh, God's word together. Father, we do thank you for what our ears have heard this morning. What we have heard, Lord, in song. There's no one like you. How we have marveled that you would think of us, set your affection upon us. What we have seen and heard, Lord, regarding the exporting of your gospel um, through RAIN Ministries, through Royal Servants, through our brother and our sister, Matt and Stacy Swanson, and for the partnership in the gospel that you have given us with them. We praise you that you've allowed us to pray and give and go so that Jesus would be known. And that's our desire this morning, that we would know you, Father, more intimately this morning as we come to your word, that you would help us to see Jesus perhaps in a fresh way or maybe for the first time and seeing him, that we would fall in love with him, that we would honor and magnify him as the Lord of all creation. And that we would be filled with your spirit and sealed to the day of redemption, bearing the fruit of your spirit, going in the zeal of your spirit and the knowledge of your word. We need so much from you this morning. Various, Lord, cases and situations in the room this morning, various challenges and distractions, various needs, various longings. We we need you so much this morning. So come come near to us and provide for us and just be with us, we pray. Help us to sense your presence and to worship you this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we've come to the, the fifth and final in our series um, on our five M's, our five sort of major objectives as a church. Um, we have been uh, thinking about that, as I said, these last five weeks. And, and again, uh, by way of reminder, these objectives are ways in which we kind of operationalize the way we put into action our mission statement. So our mission is we exist to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And in many ways, what we've talked about thus far, the message of the gospel, showing mercy to our neighbors, seeking to mature together, uh, multiplying, a lot of that is block work, call it. A lot of that is how we reach where we live, right? So God's plan for reaching our neighborhood is us. Us living in our neighborhoods, among our neighbors, um, bearing witness, being salt and light, speaking a word of gospel, a word of hope, a word of truth uh, to our neighbors, pointing them not to ourselves, but to Jesus. That's God's plan for how we reach the campus, how we reach the neighborhood, how we reach our schools, how we reach our workplaces. Well, we're thinking this morning about, well, it's from the four corners of the block, yes, but to the four corners of the globe also. How does God reach the globe. How does God send the gospel to the four corners of the world? Well, it's in what we call missions. And that's what we want to think about this morning. That's our fifth M. We, We exist Uh, To glorify God by making disciples from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And one of our core objectives is that we send missionaries to the ends of the earth, that we send missionaries to the nations of the earth. Uh, And this is not something we made up. This is something right in the Bible, like all of our other M's. This is right in the Bible. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to think about three things briefly this morning. Number one, that God. Is a missionary God. That God is a missionary God. And number two, then, Christianity is a missionary religion. That Christianity is a missionary religion. And number three, you remember, we've been trying to think about the postures that help us carry out um, the objectives that we've set for ourselves. Number three, generosity is the missionary posture. A generosity is the missionary posture. And we want to see these things from God's word. So let's think about this, that God is a, is a missionary God. The entire Bible is really one story. And it is a story about the one true and living God wanting a people for himself. Desiring a people, desiring a kingdom, desiring men and women from every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation to be his own special possession and to give himself to them as their own special God. And you see this from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. And so we're just going to trace this real quickly. You can write these passages down if you want to take notes, or you can flip there with me. We have a little sword drill uh, if you want. Um, Look with me in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. In some ways, this this whole missionary enterprise begins right here with God and a relationship that he's about to establish with a man named Abram at the time. And so God promises to Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Um, notice what it says The Lord said to him, wait a minute, that's Exodus. I'm like, how Moses getting the story? All right, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is um, the heart of what's called the Abrahamic covenant. The whole Bible is is organized in these covenants, in these relationships between uh, God and his people, Uh, and there's several as you go through the Bible, but this one is the foundation of them all. This set of promises here to Abram begin the sort of whole plan of redemption, the whole plan of salvation, the whole plan of gathering for himself a people is right here in these words. And notice, right in the beginning of this plan, we see going and gathering, don't we? He says to Abram, go to a land that I will show you. Leave your, leave your daddy's house, leave your mama's house, leave all your cousin them, baby them, leave all of them and go to a place that I will show you. And you see right here, not only is there going, but there's gathering. He says to Abram, I'm going to make you a blessing. And you notice the very end there in verse three, and." In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations, all the peoples, all the tribes of the entire planet are going to be blessed through this man, Abram, and what God has promised to Abram here. Now, this promise didn't just get made to Abram. As you read through Genesis, you'll see that God reaffirms this promise, this covenant, with Abram's or Abraham's descendants. So in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, he affirms this promise to Isaac. And then in Genesis 28, verse 14, in a dream, he affirms this promise to Jacob. And so when you're reading Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 50, it's the unfolding of this story of God taking one man, making him into a family, making that family into a nation, and laying the foundation of blessing all the other nations through that one family. Now, that promise, as we said, runs through the whole Bible. It's in all of the sort of genres or sections of the Bible. We're in the law right now, but it's also in the prophets. So just to give you a couple examples, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, you're turning to your right. You get Song of Solomon, then right after that, Isaiah. On page 632 in the real Bible. Isaiah chapter 2, just playing, y'all, verses 2 and 3. This is what the prophet Isaiah got from God. God said, Isaiah, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see that image that's there, that God's mountain is going to be bigger than all the other mountains. It's going to surpass all the other mountains in greatness and importance and attractiveness. And when God's mountain eclipses all the other hills and the mountains, the people will string to it. The nations will come and say, let us, let us learn from the Lord. And you see that, that going and that gathering again at the end of verse 3. This time it's the word. The word goes out. And then it gathers the nations. It's going to be a time where the proclamation of God's word will sound forth to the nations, and the nations will look up and see God's holy hill, and they will string to it, to worship God. Isaiah is concerned with that, not just in chapter 2, but all the way through the book. So even in the end of the book, if we turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23. You know, right near the end of the book, we're going to see this, this, same, this same notion. Um, of of God gathering for himself a people. Notice what's said there, Isaiah 66, verse 23, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. John Piper was right when he began his book on missions, let the nations be glad, with this well-known sentence. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because there are people, there are places, there are cultures, there are languages where Jesus Christ is not worshipped as God. And missions exist to fix that problem so that all of humanity would come to worship the one true God, so that the fulfillment of God's program, His plan here, uh, might be brought to pass in the gathering of the nations. And we see this, so we see this in the law. Just giving you a couple examples here from the prophets. We see it in the writings too. We see it in the the writings. For example, in Psalm 86, verse nine, the psalmist sings there, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And all the way through the Bible, even into the New Testament, even into the very last book of the New Testament. So flip there with me. You heard it read earlier. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. This is just after um, the, the plagues of various sorts. And uh, here in verse 4, these words we find, who will not fear, or you could translate that worship, or love, or adore. Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So, this is God's promise in the beginning, and it's going to be the everlasting reality in the end that the nations will gather around his throne and the nations will praise and worship him. The question is, when you look out on the world right now and you see that that's not true everywhere, that's not true among all people, the question is, well, how does it happen? How do we go from nations worshiping other gods, from nations worshiping uh, idols? How do we go from nations not knowing God to nations being drawn to his word and nations worshiping and loving God and adoring God as God said they would? How does that happen? Well, let's consider the plan of God. If that's the promise of God, here's the the plan of God in Galatians chapter 3. Look with me in Galatians 3, verse 8. I really want you to look at this with me because this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And when you're the pastor, you get to talk about your favorite verse in the Bible. It's beautiful. It's stunning, really, for me at least. Paul is talking here with the Galatian church about faith, that they are saved by faith and not by works. And he is is eager to prove that that's the case from the beginning. And in the midst of his conversation with the Galatians, he says something about God's plan in missions and about the gospel that I just find beautiful. He says in verse 8, and the scripture, referring to the Old Testament, foreseeing or prophesying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel, that the scriptures preach the gospel beforehand, before Jesus, before the New Testament, that the scriptures preach the gospel that God would justify the Gentiles beforehand to Abraham saying in these words, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, was God preaching to Abraham the gospel. That what we read in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 3, in all in you, all the nations would be blessed, is sort of this seed, this promise that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the nations would be justified, declared righteous by God by faith. It's amazing. That's amazing. God's got one plan. He's going to gather people from every tribe and nation and make them his people, and he has one way of doing that, the proclamation of the gospel from Abraham until now. Whether it's in that sort of almost concealed way, that almost hidden way of the mystery of the Old Testament, or whether it's in that revealed, flowering way, that disclosed, revealed way of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the tomb and resurrected to new life. This book is about one thing. God, through the gospel, gathering people from every nation to make them his one new people. Look again at verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. (laughs) It did not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. If there's a text in the Bible that, that teaches us to read the Bible closely, it's this one. That that God in the promise to Abraham said, I'm going to give you offspring, but he had his eye not on many offsprings, but, but on one in particular, his unique son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time would come into the world, born of a virgin, take upon himself human flesh, and would live a perfect life of obedience to God, fulfilling all that the law required, and then would voluntarily die for the sins of the world and voluntarily be punished for the sins of the world, which he had not committed. So that God's promise that we would be justified by faith, that we would be right with God by faith, God's promise would be fulfilled. And the door of God's salvation and the door into God's kingdom and the door into God's peoplehood would be kicked wide open for all who believe, for all who trust in his son. That's what God has been doing in the world at least since Abraham. And that's what he's doing in the world, in the church right now. He's a missionary God, which means he is a people seeking God, a person seeking God. And this is one of the marvelous qualities about God. Never, Never think that he's so high and lifted up and great that he's far away. He is transcendent, but he also is imminent. He is close. He's also at hand. And think about, as I was sitting out there, we were singing, we were singing some of these things that hit some of these refrains, and I was thinking about the sermon. um, The Lord just brought to mind that he does this not just for Israel, but think about the people in the Bible who are not Jewish. And outside the covenant of God, that God nevertheless takes a individual and particular concern for. What about Hagar? Sarah's handmaid given to Abraham when they're trying to bring God's plan to pass in their own power. Then when Sarah finally has a child, then she don't want Hagar around no more. And they, they kick Hagar out. And Hagar, with no other means, she had been a slave, basically, with no other means to provide for herself, is out in the wilderness, has put the baby away so that she can't see the baby, just waiting for the baby and herself to die. And God sees her. This non-Jewish woman, this slave woman, this single mother, abandoned to poverty and destitution, God sees her and she names that place the Lord who sees. Think think about think about a roof, a Moabite who marries a, a Jewish young man in another land and They had a whole life over there, and that life gets unsettled by famine and by death, and now she's got this bitter mother-in-law, and the mother-in-law, like, I'm going back home, and Ruth says, where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. And through Ruth comes the Savior. Think about all those persons who had no claim on the attention of God and the blessing of God whom God nevertheless noticed and came to and provided for. That's the kind of heart it takes for God to be a missionary God. And and that's the kind of heart that God has for you and I. So when he says he, he's going to take interest in all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, I think we can think of that in wholesale terms. You know, it's like he, he's thinking about those in, in big shipping containers. Okay, there's a represent. I want to encourage us to think about it in retail terms. He's taking each shirt off the rack, each pair of pants out the stack. We individuals are those shirts and those pair of pants that God has taken a particular interest in that he sees and that he cares for. That's you, beloved, from all the nations. I look across this room and I see Nigerian brethren, some Igbo, some Hausa, some Yoruba. Look across this room, I see a Korean sister. I look across this room, I see people from the great Republic of the Bronx. Look across this room and you See, Cameroonian sisters, Ghanaian sisters, brothers. Even in this room, we've been seeing the fulfillment of that promise, haven't we? Peoples descended from Ireland and Scotland and England, and peoples descended from the Caribbean. I see a Bahamian sister, Haitian brother. This room is the fulfillment of God's promise to gather for himself a people from every nation. He is a missionary God, and that means he cares about you, beloved. But number two, if he's a missionary God, then the church is a missionary, or the Christianity is a missionary religion. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Missiology follows theology, right? Who God is drives what we do. Right? So theology drives missiology. What we do in the world follows who God is in the world. We cannot be healthy Christians without being missionary Christians. We cannot be a healthy Christian church without being a missionary church. But the Bible knows nothing of a church, really, that has no concern for missions. That'd be an odd thing to the Apostle Paul. That'd be an odd thing to the Apostle Peter. That'd be an odd thing to Phoebe. That'd be an odd thing to Lydia. What what do you mean there's a church that exists for itself and not for the nations? It'd be strange. It should be strange to us. And, And not just because we're connecting a dot between theology and missiology, but because God told us so explicitly so you will know these words you can write it down or you can look at it with me if you want to Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 what we call the great commission where Jesus sends his apostles out in worldwide missions and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore you know for that reason because he has authority in heaven and on earth he now commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That sort of purpose statement makes no sense if God is not a missionary God and Christianity is not a missionary religion. Or, or consider what we see in, in the early chapters of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Or excuse me, yeah, we could refer to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we're we're there, we're told that we're going to be witnesses for the Lord uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the what? Ends of the earth. Or Acts chapter 13, where the first missionaries are called apart and set aside for the work of missions. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Look there with me. This, this text is also going to be important for what we have to say about the posture that we want to develop. Acts 13, verses 1 and 3. Now that we're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This begins the sort of church's missionary movement. The Holy Spirit spoke to the church and said, there are two persons in here in particular I want you to consecrate, to set apart for the work that I have for them. And the work that I have for them is to take them here from Antioch, where we were first called Christians, and to send them into the world to make other Christians, to plant other churches, to spread the gospel, to fulfill the promise made to Abraham that that through Jesus all the nations would be blessed. So we see that right there in the early history of the church, they have a conception that, that Christianity is a missionary religion. So, beloved, the only point I want to make here in way of application is, or oh, maybe there are two points. You will sometimes bump into people, Christian and non-Christian, who regard missions as kind of this cultural intrusion into the life of other people who aren't Christians. They will regard missions as this kind of arrogance that Christians have, that you would go to some place and and try and take people who are not Christians and and make them Christians. That in their own conception, that's something that that shouldn't happen because it's, it's close to arrogance or close to pride. I'm inclined to believe that, that God loves people better than we do. I am. As much as we might think we love somebody, as much as we might think that we are for the welfare of other people, I don't care how much that might be true of us, is infinitely more true of God. And if God says, take this good news to these people who are lost without it, and make my son known, so that they might become my people forever and live in my love forever well that that's worth intruding for that that that's worth being misjudged as arrogant or something in order that people might come to know this God who saves and so We ought not ever be ashamed or shy about the fact that we are followers of a missionary God and a missionary Savior and and participants in a missionary religion. In fact, we ought to understand that if, if we are shy about that or ashamed about that or we step back, withdraw away from that, then to that extent, in some sense, we are ceasing to be genuinely Christian. So central to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus is missions, that if you step back away from doing missions, you're stepping back away from what it means to be a Christian. Don't ever be ashamed of that. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the nations, the Gentiles. Romans 1, 16. Here's a second application I would make. Maybe this one hits a little bit closer to home. Maybe this one sounds a little bit more familiar. And and it's this. If Christianity is a missionary religion, or to put it a different way, if if our mission statement from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe is biblically accurate, then it it might be well-intended, but it is ultimately misguided to pit care and concern for our neighborhood against care and concern for the nations. Those things are not enemies. Those things are not at odds. So if we are ever sort of thinking and calculating like this, well, we've got so many needs, we've got so many problems right here in our neighborhood, and God knows that's true, But if we're ever thinking we've got so many needs, so many issues, so many problems in our neighborhood, we don't don't need to be messing with them people way over there. We're not thinking like Christians. We're not thinking like people who practice a missionary religion. Right? And so we we don't want to fall into that trap. God's plan, as we said earlier, for the block, for our neighborhood, is you and I, our presence here. God's plan for the nations is the sending of missionaries to make him known. And those things are not in competition or contradiction or at odds. You tracking with me? We practice a missionary religion. Come to the third point. We'll be out your way. Well, what what posture is necessary for us to live this way? Well, I want to suggest to you that it is, in a word, a posture of generosity. Lots of things we could say. We, we could say, hey, we, we, we do this because we are postured toward the glory of God. We could say we do this because in, we have a, an obedience uh, kind of posture. Uh, we, could, we could double-click on love. There, there are many things that could be sort of conduits into the practice of missions. But uh, as I prayed and thought about it and, and wrestled with it, those alternatives and others, I thought the Lord just brought me back to this notion of generosity. And I'll explain why because the gospel is actually the message of God's generosity to the world John 3:16 for God so loved there's love right what did he do he gave he gave he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's our message in a nutshell. God gave his son for our salvation so that we would not perish, that we would not be destroyed in judgment, but would be saved to live with God forever. God so love he gave. It was generosity that made the difference in practice, in God's posture toward us. That's what made the difference in our salvation. And I think as we look at the New Testament instructions uh, to Christians about missions and um, the, the work that we're to do as a Christian church, I think we see the thread of generosity running all throughout it. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples or a couple of sub points here. If we're meant to have a, a posture of generosity, that's how we're meant to sort of position ourselves in the world and engagement with the world, then number one, we want to, in our in generosity, Give our best people to the work of missions. I want to give our best people to the work of missions. Again, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 3. Let me, let me read verse 1 for us again, verses 1 and 2 for us again. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, so spiritual leaders in the church. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Think about this cast of leaders. Barnabas is known as this great encourager in the early church. He's the one who finds Saul when Saul's kind of in exile. He's neither, uh, he got no fellowship with Jews and no fellowship with Christians. He got no fellowship with Jews because he started to preach the gospel and believe in Jesus. He's got no fellowship with Christians because before he believed, he was persecuting the church, killing folk and dragging them to jail. So he's a man without a home. Who goes to get him? It's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And then then we've got Simeon, who was called, notice now, Niger, Niger, (laughs) Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, then you got a person like Manaean, who's a friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. So you got people here in this leadership who have access to power uh, and people in high position. And you've got Saul, who's, who's going to become the theologian of the early church. God says, give me Barnabas. Give me Saul. Give me the greatest encourager. Give me the greatest theologian. Give me the greatest people person. Give me the greatest thinker. All right, give me the one who abounds in love toward others and gathers the marginalized and give me the one who will confront false teaching and instruct in the truth. And he plucks them out of the leadership team at Antioch. In verse two, separate them, set them apart for the work that I have for them. And in verse three, after they had prayed and fasted and worshiped, they sent them off. This work deserves the best saints. And a church who's going to be postured to do the work of missions has to be ready in generosity to give away its best people for the spread of the gospel. So I think early in our church's history, maybe almost two years into the church's history, year and a half, two years, um, we planted mercy of Christ and, and we sent what I think is perhaps the best pastor we've had, Jeremy McLean. Those of you around long enough to know Jeremy, you know that brother loves, he is humble, he is godly, he bleeds the Bible. He he is over in in Deanwood and Lincoln Heights walking the street, talking to folks who are addicted, engaging people who who are broken, who've been cast aside, loving folks, man. He he was a Barnabas among us, and the Lord said, send him, right? You got to give your best people, and I'm, I'm putting a little bit of emphasis on this because I've spent a fair amount of time in short-term trips and in international contexts where um, be in places where people are largely unreached and unengaged, and sometimes I'll we'll have the privilege of meeting with the missionaries who are there and leaving those meetings and being like, I don't know how they got over here. Can we be honest for a minute? It seemed like sometimes we're sending our most socially awkward people to the mission field. Real talk. I remember, I remember being in the Middle East and uh, with a guy over there, his platform. He was teaching in a university over there, but he's supposed to be over there to do missions. He'd been over there about 12 years. And I remember uh, talking with him. He telling me about his life and all this good stuff. What I wasn't hearing was him sharing the gospel with anybody. And I said, well, you know, when's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? He'd been there 12 years. He said, well, I did not really gotten to, had the opportunity to do that. In 12 years? And he went on about strategy and strategy. But wait a minute, you ain't sharing And well, you know, if I share with somebody, I might get kicked out of the country. So, that, that's like supposed to be part of the risk, right? That's like part of the job. Well, I said, well, you know, tell me about your friendships with, with the people here. Well, they're kind of hard to meet. You know, me and my wife kind of shy. Like, look, man, look, I'm going to chip in on your ticket, but you need to come home. You need to come right on home. It's surprising the percentage of people on the mission field who here would be like really socially awkward. But, but, but we send them because they say they have a calling. And maybe they do. But I just want to suggest to you that actually what we should be looking for are those most fruitful persons who live missions like lifestyles, who live like with a, with a sentness, who have a, a kingdom mindedness, who are, who are humble and, and know how to like actually greet people. We should be sending those folks. Be generous with our best people because that's what's happening in Acts chapter 13, I believe. I mean, I mean we should also be, number two we should give our best resources to those people who go. So we should send our best people with our best resources. If they are on the front lines of advancing the gospel in this spiritual warfare against Satan for souls, we don't want to send them without armor. We don't want to send them without resources. We want them thoroughly equipped for the work that God has called them to, and that requires generosity from us, right? So let me give you a text here, 3 John, verses 5 to 8. 3 John, verses 5 to 8. Now, just as an aside, um, you realize that that many of the letters, maybe most of the letters in the New Testament, um, are at least in part missionary support letters. That the Apostle Paul is thanking people for their support or asking them for their support, et etc. So most, most of this literature, if you get like um, email newsletters from missionaries that we support or that you support, you know, they're doing a very New Testament kind of thing, right? And that's, that's in part what this letter is. It's a letter um, written to a guy named Gaius, who is, who is known for his hospitality to the missionaries who've come through. And so let's begin in verse five, um, where, where, where John writes there, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do, notice, in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are. So these, are, these aren't these even missionaries from Gaius' own church or area. They they are traveling. They've probably got a letter of commendation or recommendation. Gaius has brought them in. He's treating them uh, as saints with this calling to take the gospel everywhere. And And John is saying, you don't even know these brothers, but listen, you are doing a faithful thing in all your efforts to care for them. Verse 6, who testified to your love before the church. So now they have traveled on from Gaius's place and they have gone on to the church wherever John is and they are talking about Gaius and Gaius's generosity. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Pause. What in your mind would be a manner worthy of God? A God who so love he gave his only begotten son. How now do we give? To the work of missions, to the work of God, how now do we give to the spread of the gospel among the nations who don't know Jesus? How now do we give in a way that is reflective, that is worthy of this God who loved us and whom we love in return? So John says, you do well to give like that, to give, to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, for the sake of Jesus Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, right? So they should be going to the nations, not to live off the nations, but to serve the nations. And they should be going in such a way that they can give themselves to the nations, to the Gentiles, without worrying about where they're going to eat or not without worrying about whether or not the children will have medical care, without worrying about whether or not they can buy a book or they're making a trade-off between a book and a biscuit, right? They should be able to have a biscuit and a book. Verse 8, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So you got goers and you have givers. You got those who go for the sake of the name, and you got those who give in support in a way that's worthy of this God that the gospel might go for. So that, that's the posture we need, this kind of generosity. We need to be possessed of the kind of generosity that would give away its best people and then give away its best resources in support of those people as they go to the nations. And, what I just suggest, not as, not as, not as a way of, of, of guilting or manipulating, but, but just because I think it's true, I, I think we should be ashamed if we don't. In view of how much God has given us in Christ, we should be ashamed if we discover in some way that we don't give in a manner worthy of God that others too might come to know Christ. The, the 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 sort of episode from my life that illustrates this for me, as a brother who leads a, a church in uh, Ras Al Khaimah. Uh, it's one of the in 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 Dubai. It's one of the immigrants in Dubai. I was pastor in the Cayman Islands at the time that he got the call, and uh, it was an interesting situation. The the sheikh there had granted evangelicals uh, freedom, permission, open permission to build a church and the whole worship services there. Now, just, just so you know, that don't happen often, right? That don't happen often. Um, in fact, it happens almost never. And so this seemed to be the Lord's divine hand at work. And uh, this young man accepted the call to go pastor that church and to, to sort of oversee the building of that, that, that physical building there. And I remember he, he worked for a well-known theologian and, semin- and seminary president at the time. And, and that president discouraged him from going. Because he thought life would be better here in the States. I'm like, you 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 shouldn't be a seminary president. You're supposed to be preparing people to go. And here you are arguing, because you think he's one of your better people, that he shouldn't go. Get another job. And so he decided to obey God and not man. And so and so step number two was he needed to raise funds to, to build this property. And he was reaching out to everybody he knew, he knew a lot of guys by, by virtue of his work in that seminary and interaction with pastors all around the country, he knew a lot of pastors was getting like no support. He came down to visit with us and, and our little church in the Cayman Islands and, and we were all excited. We were like, yeah, we'll, we'll give. And, we'll, and, and he said with tears in his eyes, like, you're, you're, the first, you're, you're the first church to partner with us in the gospel. Now, what struck me was not that we were the first or anything of that sort. There would be others who would come along, et cetera. He would, he would do the work with what the Lord provided. He was, he was godly that way. But what struck me was the pressure he was under back in Dubai, that, that every couple of months or so, the sheikh would have one of his people reach out to say, have you broken ground yet? Have you started the building yet? two months, no, six months, no, one year, no, two years, no, until the sheikh was like, well, why can't Christians get it together? If I wanted a mosque over there, that would have been built like yesterday. That's the part that really struck me. That's the part that really struck me. That this man who doesn't know our God and his generosity in Jesus Christ nevertheless had a generosity toward at least the building of buildings that, that reflected his religion and his value placed in the religion, but at least the American church in that instance had no vision for it. Now, here's the really damning thing. We had no vision for building a church in the Middle East among a people who did not know Jesus with the special permission and protections of the king. But we had visions for building campuses and churches here where everybody can fall out of their bed right into a church building. We're too concerned about our own kingdoms sometimes and not concerned enough about the kingdom of God. And, and the root problem of that, often, for some of us, is we lack generosity. We lack a generosity that's married together with kingdom-mindedness, that's married together with a sense of incarnation, that's married together with humility, that's married together with a sense of sentness. We're not postured for mission. We're, we're postured too often for our bank accounts. We're postured too often for our possessions. We are called, if we're following the God who gave his only begotten son for us, we are called to lay down our lives. Lay down our lives. Lay down this world, to die to this world. That we might give ourselves to something greater and better that's not just for us, but that's for the nations give ourselves for the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel and the global glory of Jesus Christ in the work of mission. So, question hanging over this sermon is, how generous are we? How generous are we? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I I want you to begin not with your own generosity as if that makes you good with God. Might make you good compared to other people. It won't make you good with a God whose standard is perfection. So I want you to begin with your generosity. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, begin with God's generosity to you. Begin with His kindness to you. In sending his son for you, he sees you and saw you in your sin, just as he saw each and every one of us in our sin. And in his generosity, he decided he would not abandon us in our sin to suffer the consequences of an eternal hell. Instead, he would give his best, his one and only son, who himself is God, who would come into the world, take our place die for us and be raised from the grave three days later. So that, so that God could give us even more. He could give us with his son, everything that belongs to him. Eternal life, righteousness, peace, joy, in a kingdom that will never fail, that will never perish. Start with what God gives you. In Jesus Christ, repent of sin, put your faith in the Lord Jesus, enjoy his generosity, and then let that generosity work itself out through you. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, turn from sin, put your faith in Jesus. If you want to know more about what that is, what life to expect, how to do that, see any of the Christians who who brought you here. And if after the service we get to know you and introduce ourselves, and in a couple of minutes we ask you if you're a Christian, we're not trying to be intrusive and nosy and off-putting. We're trying to introduce you to God's generosity. Welcome it. Welcome it. Hear it and receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you promise and are fulfilling the promise. To draw all nations to yourself. We thank you that you preached the gospel to Abram beforehand, promising that through him, through his offspring, through through his offspring, you would bless all nations. We we thank you that we are justified. We may write with you, not by works that we have done, but we may write with you by faith alone, apart from works. That too is. You being generous, not charging us, not requiring of us, not demanding of us things that really we are too spiritually poor to offer, but giving to us your Son, giving to us eternal life, giving to us his righteousness, giving to us peace and reconciliation, giving to us an eternal kingdom. You are the best giver. And we praise you. And we pray that that many, 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 all nations and even all people in this room would receive your divine generosity and live. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all of your churches. We pray, Lord, fix our posture that we might, Lord, be effective in your mission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm. you.